Welcome to the Form Guide special to launch the Inside Out Leaderboard 2021. We're going to be chatting to Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer of Deloitte in the US, and Clark Carlisle, former professional footballer and prolific mental health advocate and keynote speaker. Don't miss this one. So welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us for the launch of the 2021 Inside Out Leaderboard. Your tune there was Talamanca by a Scottish DJ called Burns. It's my favourite house tune at the moment and uh, it was a bit of a banger to uh, celebrate the launch of the leaderboard. So um, welcome Jen, Jen Fisher. Welcome Clark. How are you both today? I am doing really well today. Excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us Jen. How about you Clark? Equally so. Very exciting. It's a great day and a great thing to be part of, Rob. So thank you for, for getting us involved and, uh, and for acknowledging us. Oh, mate, it's, uh, it's, it's an absolute pleasure. And I'm uh, you know, grateful for you guys spending some time with us to, to really launch the leaderboard. Thanks for everyone joining us on the, uh, on the LinkedIn Live. Um, and everybody on the Zoom webinar as well. So today we launched the third edition of the Inside Out Leaderboard with 107 role models, emerging leaders and allies, all passionate about smashing the stigma of mental ill health in our workplaces and our societies. Now this was an idea born about four years ago when I shared my story of bipolar disorder and trying to end my life when I was 31. And when I shared my story, I, I started to understand how many people in my immediate network experience mental ill health, but do so in silence because of the stigma. It was friends, it was family members, it was business contacts. People from all walks of my life were sharing their stories back because I'd given them the safe space to do so, inspired by Jeff McDonald. And I started to think, how could I contribute to smashing that stigma that prevents people from being open and prevents people from seeking some help. Because talking does help, we all know this. And the Inside Out Leaderboard was a simple idea that is designed to try and catalyze conversation and openness in our workplaces and in our societies by showcasing and celebrating senior leaders who are open about their challenges of mental ill health uh, in, in, in our workplaces. So we're gonna have a chat today with two of our role models and two, of, two people I'm proud to call a friend um, from the 2021 uh, Inside Out Leaderboard. And there's been lots of great activity. I think we probably had a million views today of different posts on LinkedIn. So um, really great to see many of the role models uh, here on the, uh, on the Zoom right now. So let's get into it. Um, I'm really keen to just get a brief intro from both of you. Jen, I'm going to start with you. Just give us a bit of your background, a little bit of your story and, and why this why you're so passionate about this agenda. Yeah, absolutely. So I am currently the Chief Wellbeing Officer at Deloitte uh, in the US, so for our US population, but uh, our commitment to mental health does span the globe in terms of our, our entire organization um, and, our, and, and our leadership being focused on this topic and, and this issue. Um, you know, why I'm so passionate about it is, you know, about and, and, and actually how I ended up in my role is about seven years ago, I found myself completely burnt out um, and at a time when nobody was talking about burnout in the workplace, to your point, um, it was dead silence. I mean, I didn't even know what burnout was, quite frankly. I just knew that I was struggling and I looked around and 
in a high-performing organization like Deloitte, we're all really good at showing up and pretending like we have it all together. And so I processed it, I processed, processed it as failure, that there was something wrong with me. Um, I got to the point where it was so bad that I did have to take a leave of absence from work. I was you know, diagnosed with, um, with depression and anxiety. I was struggling with my physical health at the time as well. Um, and, and so I, you know, I had to take time off to, to get healthy and well, both mentally and physically, I came back to work and, um, I really didn't want to continue to do the job that I was doing. I wanted to dive into the space of helping people not get where I got and not have that be, you know, a marker of success that you're so burnt out or you're, you're wearing this badge of busy. Um, and that's what led to me, to me being in my role. Um, and, you know, as I got more and more comfortable in my role, I also became more and more comfortable speaking about my own story and in particular, my mental health. And, and as I did, um, as scared as I was, especially the first time, I think, Rob, I've told you this story, the first time I spoke openly was in a Harvard Business Review article. So I just went big, right? Like, forget <laughs> the small stuff. <laughs> And when the article published, I called up the, the head of HR communications at Deloitte and I was like, please call Harvard Business Review and tell them to take it down. I was so scared about what that meant for me. But what happened after that was just an outpouring of compassion and empathy and people saying, wow, I had no idea you know, me too, but Jen, you seem so happy and so energetic and so successful. How could you possibly struggle with your mental health? And I was kind of like, well, how could I possibly not? Because it's very human <laughs> thing, right? But but just the dialogue that it opened up, um, you know, has created this incredible platform and it's become part of my mission to always, you know, speak about this to create a safe place and empower others to speak up and ask for the help that they need, whether it's in the workplace or more broader in society. Fantastic, Jenna. Thank you so much for sharing. And yeah, you know, I love that from that position of adversity, you you literally changed your role and created a chief well-being officer role and then have been on this amazing journey of, of doing good. And we're going to talk more about that. But Clark, keen to uh, just get a, the same from you, really, an insight into you know your story a little bit and why you're so passionate about mental health in society oh. and the workplace. Thanks, Rob. But I don't even know why I'm here after hearing that from Jen. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> me, me, me neither. Me neither, Claire. Me neither. <laughs> I, I love it when people share with, with such honesty and authenticity like that, Jen, because the resonance within me validates me in my experience. Uh, and that's what I want to afford to other people. You know, what I've experienced it in my life is the, the, the sharing and creating of a safe place has to be instigated by someone but as soon as it is, the permission that that gives to everyone to, to come on that journey is such a powerful thing. And, and like you said, you know, being part of this leaderboard where it's those people with positions of influence within their organisations that are able to facilitate this kind of space it is, is wonderful. And the reason why I'm so passionate is, again, from lived experience, um, but mine was a trauma-based incident, Jen. Uh, I had a career-threatening injury at 21 um, because I was a professional footballer in, in here in the UK, in England. Uh, I played for 17 years across all four divisions, you know, played at Wembley Stadium and in the Premier League and all, all these wonderful um, achievements that, that made my, line, my life seem... Uh, 
you know, almost impermeable to, to any kind of adversity from the outside. But what people didn't know, and most importantly, what I didn't know, is that that career-threatening injury that led me to attempting to take my own life at 21 years of age, we swept that under the carpet because I survived and got away with it, so to speak, and pretended it never happened. And from there was the inception of my depression. I had recurrent complex depressive disorder, uh, but I didn't know it. So how that was manifesting itself in my life, a life of, of uh, cyclical, self-destructive, sabotage behaviour that I attributed to me being an idiot, other people attributed to me being some kind of diva footballer star who just wanted to have his cake and eat it. What was actually happening was me self-medicating depressive episodes in the only way that I knew. And... Uh, that journey, um, especially coming through retirement as an elite athlete, I retired in 2013 and the loss of identity was huge, the chasm within my life, because before then, and, and as I'm sure happens in many work environments, your working identity becomes your whole persona. It becomes the basis of, of your, your self-worth and all of your values. And then success and or failure in that guise is then reflected in your own self-esteem. So when I was, when I was uh, without football at 33 years of age, I thought that I was an old man and that I had no value to the, to the world. And I attempted to take my life for the fifth time in that journey. Now, I was supported in crisis through fantastic services that there are within football, within the football family and within the NHS here in England. We have excellent crisis management services. It's too late at crisis management. There are far too many people who aren't as blessed as me to, to not see through their suicide attempts. We know that the number of people who do take their own life each year multiply that number by 20 that's the number of people who attempt to take their their life each year and that's pre-pandemic this must change so my passion now is to get an infrastructure of confidence and competence in the mental health space that joins up services in a proactive way to prevent people from getting to where i've been oh wow clark thank you for being so open and and sharing your your story your inspiration for for what you do now you, you said a word that has resonated with me and i'd like to pick it up in a little while which is permission right it's permission to say how we're feeling both in the workplace and in in our friend groups and in societies so let's hold that thought and pick that up i've got a whole script that i'm probably going to ignore but thank you to my communications <laughs> partner alex who i know is on the call but I, I i think we'll go off on a few tangents but um first of all i'd like to um just ask you what your score is today i'm, I'm an eight out of ten i'm clearly buzzing by you know the all of the leaderboard activity um you know you're both familiar with the form score a simple score out of ten to let you know how you're feeling but jen what's your score today i'd say i'm about an eight out of ten also cool what's driving that for you 
Let's see, I had a great night's sleep. I got up, I took my dog for a walk. I live in Miami, Florida. It's a beautiful, sunny day. Um, you know, work has gone well so far this morning for me. <laughs> no, no shoes have fallen from the air. Um, and, you know, I think one of the first things I saw when I looked on my phone this morning, Rob, was was your LinkedIn post. And so just the the feeling of gratitude and how blessed I feel um, to be recognized and to be honored in this way and to be connected to everybody in this community. I think I said in my post um, also that, you know, this is one of the most meaningful recognitions in my entire professional career. And so that has just carried me through um, my day up to this point. And I have no, I have no doubt that this conversation is going to carry me through to the rest of today and probably the whole week. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I love that, that idea of this connection that we've, we've all got this connection of being open, <clears throat> excuse me, this connection of being passionate about making change. And yeah, I'm just looking at some of the people on the chat and, and all of the people on the leaderboard, just this, this common common goal of making positive change in the world and it does bring us together um, i think what one of the things i was reflecting on rob this morning because we've heard we've been hearing so much about um the negative impacts of of social media and social media platforms on our mental health and i was reflecting on how you and i got connected right <laughs> and so we often hear you know the the negative of of social media but that's how you and i met and then we yeah. met you know in person in new york city and we have continued to celebrate one another and share positive things out with the world um in a way that i hope is changing people's lives but i was just reflecting on that this morning just you know that there is a very positive use for social media to create social connection we just have to be intentional about it and i think too often we hear so much of the negative or tune in and i'm not denying that it's there it's absolutely real but is yeah. there a way that we can bring this community together to combat some of that. Yeah, 100%. You know, and I think you use the word intentional, which I love being intentional about the use of, of social media, being intentional about our well-being, being intentional about our sleep. And you're right, we did connect that way. And it is a platform to change the world. Um, but we need to use it in the right way. So I don't think tech or, or social media is intrinsically bad. The way we use it sometimes is for sure. Yeah. Um, so everybody on the chat, I'd, I'd normally do an anonymous form score poll, but in the spirit of openness, um, and Nicola, thank you for sharing your eight out of 10, and I saw some earlier, but please do share your form scores. Clark, what's, what's your score today? I'm a seven today, Rob. I'm a seven. And it's it's interesting because, I, I, you know, we were having a quick chat about this before. The seven that I'm at today is actually different to the seven that I was at last year. And this is what I love about the form score. Um, and again, Jen, you know, the, you use that word intentional. To be intentional means to be cognizant. And I have to be cognizant of the numbers that I'm using because I'm in a better place now. I'm consistently well. So to use a seven, it doesn't mean the same as a seven out of 10 meant last year. You know, last year's seven is probably this week's five. Mm -hmm. So, you know, taking that intentional analysis of where you're at and using the form score as a basis for that, I think it's a wonderful tool. You know, it's a brilliant way for me to, to con consistently uh, and consciously be aware of where I'm at. 
And Jen, I, honestly, I, I'm I'm fanboying you here. <laughs> this is absolutely awesome. And um, you know, I think you raise a really important point, and and that's about the way that society in the current era is very polemic about things. It's good or it's bad. It's yes or it's no. You're for us or against us. But the reality of life, and you, this is from an individual point right through to an organizational point, right through to a societal point, is very nuanced. You know, that there are subtleties in all of our thoughts and behaviors, in our actions and responses, and in the impact of the of the things that we utilize. So yes. There are many ways in which social media is utilized in a negative way, but this is one of the fantastic positive ways that we get to proliferate a message, share our experiences globally from, from my mother-in-law's spare room. I mean, this is, a, this is incredible. You know, what, where else would I have the opportunity to speak on such a global platform from, from such a small space? Yeah, absolutely. And and thank you for those that have shared you know, some lower scores. And, you know, again, um, it's great that you feel able to do that. Um, and, and, you know, three or four, we're here for you, Stuart. Thank you for doing it. Alex of five, we're here for you. And Joanne on the LinkedIn Live at a four. Yeah, there's something about accepting the fact that our scores um, and our well-being oscillate daily, hourly. And for me, the worst part of my depression, I don't know if you guys felt this, that it, I just felt I was always going to be in that negative state, in, in that really difficult place. And one thing that, that the recovery has, has shown me is that actually, just because we're a three out, three out of 10 today, and we will be from time to time, it doesn't mean we're going to stay that way forever. And that's quite a powerful visualization, isn't it, Joe? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can definitely um, connect with, with that statement. I, you know, I think when you know, when you, especially when you have multiple days in a row, right, where you're, you know, where you're a three or a four, um, it, it does get cloudy and kind of hard to see your way out. Um, but I think, you know, reflecting back on, okay, you know, if you've been through this before, <laughs> you know, you, you know that, you know, the sun will come out again, eventually, um, and you do start to develop your own strategies um, or, or talk. I mean, I think talking to people, right? <laughs> you know, uh, the, the book that, that my co-author and I wrote uh, called Work Better Together, the premise of it is based on social connection and social relationships in the workplace, but just broader in life. Um, and I found for me, you know, on those days where I feel really low and the last thing I feel like doing is actually calling somebody up and talking to them. The best thing that I can do for myself is calling somebody up that that I trust that knows me. Um, and, you know, and, and I think the other important point as somebody that has been on on the other end, because a lot of the times when I speak about this, people say to me, you know, I, I would love to engage with somebody you know, that might be struggling with their mental health or that I, you know, that I perceive as just struggling in general. But, you know, I'm afraid if I say something, you know, they they will take it badly. They, you know, that that I'll make things worse or that they will have a problem that I can't solve. And I think that the, the third one is really interesting, right? Because as someone who has struggled and does struggle with my mental health, when I reach out to somebody to talk, 
I, I don't, my intention is not for them to solve the problem for me. They can't, <laughs> no matter what they do. I just want to know that I'm seen and heard and not alone and that there are people that care about me that I can reach out and just say, hey, you know what? I'm having a shit day. <laughs> and I just need to know that you're there for me. I'll figure it out. You know, I have my 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 strategies. You know, I go to therapy. I do all the things, right? I know, I know what to do, but I just need to know that you're there for me. And I think that that's a really important message for people is you, know, you don't have to solve it. And we're not asking you to solve it. We're, we're asking you to be there for us. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to, I want to hear much more about your book in a little while, because I think connection, <laughs> connections, you know, in, in and out of the workplace, super important, super important as we recover from this, this pandemic that we've all gone through. Um, but, but Clark, I'm keen, keen to hear kind of, you know, your perspective on that. And, and Jenna, I, I think I mentioned this to you on your, your podcast, actually, that I know you're a proud cancer survivor. And if, if a friend turned to you and said, I've been diagnosed with cancer, what you don't do is then worry whether you can prescribe a course of chemotherapy. Right. What you do is you say, that's really shit. Let me give you a hug. What do you need? Yeah. I'm here for you. But whereas with, our, with mental ill health, the stigma makes us often fearful that how can we solve this? How, what can we say? And, and, and Clark, what, what's your perspective on this? Have you kind of, you know, you've obviously had seen it from both sides in terms of you know, needing support, but also supporting others, I guess. Yeah, you, the, the analogy you use is perfect. You know, we, we talk about parity of esteem as though mental health and physical health are different. Mental health is the, the brain that is being affected by A, B or C. And as far as I'm aware, the brain is physical and it is the CEO of your body and all of your actions. So if the, if the CEO of your body is actually in some state of disrepair, then how are we going to be able to acknowledge, understand and formulate our, our recovery through that on our own? We're not. But the, the analogy that you use is perfect because when it comes to physical health, as a society, we are very, very aware of where our responsibility ends and professional services begin. It's drummed into us from four years of age, from a nosebleed to a burn to breaking of the leg, blah, blah, blah. When it gets to this point, you call your doctor. If it gets to this point, this is actually an emergency, you call 999. We all know that. But we don't know that with regards mental ill health. People are, are, are very... Um, ignorance not the right word because ignorant almost implies they choose to not know we haven't been educated as a society because we're just on that you know the the upturn in the curve around awareness and competent and commensurate research that informs our knowledge etc etc so what we always encourage and when I say we I always talk about my wife and I Clark and Carrie we're a working team and I'm blessed to be a part of that team. And I'm very aware that not everyone has that, you know, so I don't take that for granted. Uh, but when I say we, we always talk to people about understanding that it's not your responsibility to fix a person's mental ill health. Just like if I broke my leg, like you said, Rob, you give me a cuddle to calm me down. <laughs> Just while the, the ambulance got here, and professional services did the fixing, we need to understand our role in that dynamic with regards to a person's mental ill health. And also the traffic light system of where those um, symptoms and those signs, where they fit on that scale. 
you know so if someone comes into work screaming blah 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 naked you, you don't ignore them equally you don't ask for a pint of what they're drinking that's a crisis you call the, the the services but if someone's displaying low mood for a couple of days then that's at a very different level of intervention and and, and we need to educate ourselves and our wider communities around what this is and where the responsibilities of professional services live. Yeah, absolutely. Um, edu education, building that literacy, building self-awareness, I, I agree. Um, I'm, I'm loving these comments on the chat as well. Rob, thank you for being so open. And uh, Jen, you've given Rob a eureka moment and, and thank you for sharing so openly there. Um, and, and, and from Erin as well. So keep those comments coming on the chat. I think I'd like to talk about role modeling, um, in the, obviously in the context of that's the purpose of the leaderboard. Um, and, and I guess we're making progress, but we're still very uncomfortable about talking about mental ill health in our workplaces and in our societies. Um, Jen, starting with you, what, where, where do you think we're at with it? And, and how do you see the importance of both senior leaders in the workplace, but also kind of public figures being open about mental ill health? Yeah, I, well, I mean, we're, <laughs> we're definitely moving in the right direction. And um, I, I think, you know, some massive public figures on a world stage this year have spoken openly about their mental health and and have stepped back from mm. <laughs> you know massive competitions to to focus on their mental health and and i think um what was most touching to me about all of that certainly the courage of those athletes to do it on such a world stage but in particular the support that they got the open support that they got from their teams right mm. and i think I mean, just blown away. Um, and, and if I translate that into the workplace and just society at large, but in particular, the workplace, I mean, isn't that, I mean, that's what we're striving for, right? And so I do think in the workplace, prior to the pandemic, we were, you know, a lot of organizations were starting to talk about it, starting to focus on it. I do think that the pandemic in many ways has, you know, I don't know, forced is the right word, but has forced leaders across the board to focus on, you know, the overall health and well-being, including mental health of their workforce going well beyond, you know, just standard health and safety. Um, because if it's not another global pandemic, we continue to live in a world that is disrupted on so many levels. Mm. Um, and, you know, human beings, although we are constantly changing, we're terrible at like big, massive change. <laughs> we just don't handle it well. <laughs> and so if you want to have a thriving, resilient workforce, and unfortunately, I, I do feel like the word resilience has become too much of a buzzword. So I'm mm. kicking myself for using it, but but I'm going to use it. <laughs> Um, if you want to have a thriving and resilient workforce, both physically and mentally, you 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 do. Have, I mean, like if you employ human beings, you have to care about this issue and the power of storytelling and role modeling in in my own life um, is, is so powerful. And I I think that, you know, there's a new generation of leaders and this, the skill sets that are now required for leaders you know we we used to talk about it kind of as the future of work but i think the future of work is is here and it's you know and it's right now 
And those skill sets are the truly human skill sets, right? Their their empathy, their compassion, their social connection. They are it's collaboration in order to solve complex problems, um, and and that requires true humanity and you know and and vulnerability and authenticity. And so, I, you know, I I think we have a ways to go. I think there are a lot of organizations that are talking about it, which is a good first step, right? Awareness is a good first step. I'm very interested to see what organizations are going to do about it. Um, and I don't think we're, I don't think we're there yet. So, but I, but I, I, I applaud the talking about it. Cause I do think that that's the first step. Sure. Yeah. We've got to talk about it and we need to yeah. see more action. I think, you know, we can talk about the effects of the pandemic a little bit, but it's elevated the conversation, hasn't it? We need to translate the talk into action mm -hmm. uh, at, a, at a systemic and a, yeah, at a, at a kind of mid-management level as well as leadership saying we need to do mental health better. I think the other bit about role modelling of, of mental ill health is it then changes the narrative that it creates cultures where everybody, wherever they are on that continuum, can feel more equipped and, and have more permission to prioritise well-being. Because it's not all just about dealing with illness. It's about prioritizing right. well, wellness. And it, isn't it? it's preventative in many ways, right? If I feel mm -hmm. empowered to take care of myself, my whole self, as I need to, um, in for for many people, it could prevent. You know, like Clark said, it could prevent you getting to crisis because you're willing to step back and raise your hand or do what you need to do to take care of yourself before it gets to the point of crisis. Yeah. And we need to celebrate that, don't we? We need to celebrate that sort of behaviour. We don't need to celebrate the all-nighters and people skipping vacation. Um, we need to celebrate the people that are caring for, for their wellness. Um, Clark, I, I kind of want to ask you the role modelling question from a slightly different perspective. And um, you know, we, we published the leaderboard today and um, I was challenged in, in the right way about the, the numbers of people of colour uh, on that leaderboard. Um, mm -hmm. Now, you're obviously a black man who speaks openly about your mental health challenges. Um, I guess my, my question is, you know, how important is it for people that look like you to be sharing your stories? And, you know, what sort of cultural sensitivities have you found on your journey of being open uh, about your mental health challenges? That's a brilliant question, Rob. And the... <clears throat> It's one of those responses that I'm going to refer to my earlier answer where it's incredibly nuanced because where what it means to the black community, my, you know, let's say where, where I grew up or my family, um, to see a black sportsman talk about his mental ill health and the vulnerabilities within that, maybe giving permission to embark on a conversation themselves about this is wonderful. What it means for me to describe myself as a black man is a different thing altogether. Because again, I, I didn't grow up as a black man, Rob. I grew up as a, as a colored kid. And then I was half caste. And then I was mixed race. And then I was of mixed heritage. And now I'm BAME. So all of these imposed identities upon me, because I have a black father and a white mother, 
it's not as simple for me to say I'm a black man because I don't seem to fit into any of these categories. Mm -hmm. So actually me being of mixed heritage has impacted my mental health because I was never black enough for the black community because I speak the Queen's English and I applied myself, you know, at school and, and my parents actually um, encouraged me to leave black black behaviors and language and mannerisms behind in order to give myself the best chance for for furtherance in my career and in life but i was always clearly not white and so in the white community the white side of my family you know there are aspects of surprise that i was an eloquent young black man or blah 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 uh, I, I don't know if I've answered your question there, but in the context of role models, it's incredibly important. It's important to see people who look like you, who you can look up to, and you know that you can copy their actions. But the whole aspect of, of race and ethnicity in the context of mental health is a far greater, more amorphous beast. And it, it's made even more interesting because... There's, a, there's ambiguity about the, the, the lines of race and socioeconomics that, that impact people's access to mental health and mental health provisions. And it, it's very hard to separate those two, you know, the, to, to be part of a working class community, a socially deprived community, you immediately have lower access or a longer waiting time when you're trying to access support services. Mm -hmm. And that's before you go into the barriers of my dad doesn't want to see me showing any sign of perceived weakness because that's not how he identifies a man should be. You know, so it's a, it's a very complex answer. <laughs> yeah, it, it, is, it, 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 it does. And it's a, it's, a, it's a complex subject, though, isn't it? It is a complex subject because we're, we're talking about layers of identity and we're all unique humans. We all um, oscillate on that mental health continuum and, and some of us will have a diagnosable mental illness. And then we've all got levels of stigma in our societies, workplaces, communities um, and cultures that we might face. And, you know, I think wellness, you can't strip out wellness from from identity right it's all interlinked Jen what's, what's I'm sure you've got a perspective on this Jen I'd love to hear it <laughs> yeah I, I so so on which part specifically <laughs> well I, I guess I have lots of perspectives <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I guess spe specifically on the kind of you know the intersection of identity and, and race in the workplace and and you know mental health yeah um, and, and stigma and being open it, it it has it has come up a lot um in particular over the last year um when um in the u.s you know there you know we had the black lives matter movement um you know there was just a lot going on and and quite frankly has always been going on <laughs> if we're honest <laughs> um you know and and you know, so one of the things that that we are you know, very aware of and, and try to be very um, uh, compassionate about within our programs within Deloitte is making sure that, you know, whatever it is that we provide to our people, that there are um, resources that are culturally relevant and culturally aware. Um, and, and that sometimes is really hard to do, but, you know, when we had uh, the Black Lives Matter movement several months ago, one of the things that we did stand up was 
something that we called healing circles. And it was for our black professionals to come together in basically a small, you know, small group therapy to just process what they were feeling um, and what they were, you know, what was coming up for them at a time of incredible turmoil in, in the US um, where it was front and center. And it was fascinating because it was in the middle of the pandemic where we were pretty much still all quarantined and so you couldn't turn a blind eye to it right mm -hmm. it was it, it was front and center and perhaps it was supposed to happen that way some might say because we couldn't turn a blind eye to it we mm -hmm. couldn't we couldn't you know go about our daily lives and pretend that it wasn't going on you had to focus on it if you turned on the tv or or read anything or <laughs> or or you know paid attention to society at large and so within these healing circles i mean what we heard is that Many of our black professionals, you know, were experiencing the impact of racial trauma, but actually didn't know that it was, I mean, similar to Clark, right? Like it didn't know that that's what they were experiencing because that's actually like how they've always lived their life. It's always been there for them. Right. And so as they started to have these conversations with, with trained clinicians, you know, the realization that oh my gosh, this is not the way that it's supposed to be, <laughs> um, was incredibly powerful and impactful, but just unleashed a, a whole bunch of emotions for them, right? To, to really, to, you know, I mean, at, at a, in an age, you know, they're all adults now, right? And so they've basically lived their whole life up to this point, not realizing that, you know, the, the trauma that had come just from the fact that they they're, the color of their skin is black, right? And and that can that can translate to almost any culture or any race, right? And so I think that really opened our eyes to say, um, you know, we need to make sure that as much as possible, we're providing culturally relevant and culturally competent resources to our people, so that when they do have an issue or they need to talk to somebody they can see themselves in that person. Um, and yeah. that's that's really, really important. And that, you know, there there is a long history that I became educated on. I had no idea in particular in, in kind of the African-American or black community around, you know, mental health and, and the, this, the, the stigma around mental health. And, you know, if you think it's kind of bad in broader society, it is even further stigmatized and, in some of our black communities um and and so um you know speaking out about it or seeking help is is very or has been very taboo i think it's becoming more and more open but um and and that was something that i had to get educated on myself because i was completely unaware yeah 100 just, just comment to that please rob you, you're so right jen because it, it was only through my lived experience and sitting on a psychiatric hospital bed that i had the first heart-to-heart -heart conversation with my father about his actual lived experience and his beliefs and values you know and that it shouldn't be that way you know we're talking about what our experiences give permission for these things to happen which is brilliant but i've gone through my life having created my own belief structures around childhood perceptions of what my father was and those childhood perceptions where he was trying to educate me in order to protect me he was trying to educate me and protect me from what he was actually experiencing at that time. And I perceived it in a very different manner because as a child, you're the God of that universe. But this is fundamental to the belief structures that I bring into adult life. 
and it's no longer the case. So understanding that I am now the adult in the room, understanding that there are certain things that were coping strategies for my father that aren't mine and certain things that were coping strategies for me as a kid that aren't relevant for me now. I think that can apply to all of us in our personal growth. But I just want to attest to role models in the workplace, Rob, because they they have a greater importance than I believe they do in general society because within the workplace, the vast majority are in a hierarchical structure. And as an employee, you will do something because you believe your manager values that, that action or that behavior. And if we don't have senior executive, highest level role models and allies for, for sharing in this mental health and well-being space, for uh, accessing services where, when it's timely and not when it's crisis, uh, then employees won't follow suit, not because they don't want to, not because they don't feel the need to, but because they don't feel that that action is valued higher up the chain. And the greatest theme, Carrie and I, we, we're blessed to have delivered to our one millionth attendee through the pandemic. Again, the wonders of, of technology, you know, <laughs> and the, the strongest, most recurring theme is employability when it comes to the reticence to, to access services and engage with. So having that senior buy-in saying, yeah, not only are these services here, but we expect you to use them. You know, we expect you to engage with them in order to underpin your growth, not only within this company, but as a human being, then that's the only way that we will get, you know, it's got to be from the top down because that informs the behaviors from the bottom up. Yeah. Hundred percent, hundred percent. You know, it it is. It, I hundred percent agree with that. But I, but I will. What I will also say is, I think it's an and because the and I don't like to generalize with gener generations. But what we are seeing is our our younger workforce um, is much more open about their mental health and their expectation of their employer <laughs> to care about them and and you know them as a whole person including their mental health but they are much more willing to speak up and say you know i am struggling and i expect you as my employer to help me to care about this to care about me as a whole person and not just you know my productivity so that i can make the organization more money and so i think that the the role modeling at the at the top of the top of the organization is incredibly important but i have to give a shout out to the the younger workforce that's coming in because they are they're demanding it <laughs> um which i think is pretty awesome <laughs> yeah, I, re I remember a conversation with a senior executive of one of our banks who said that the generation coming in are asking more about what they're doing for well-being than they are about bonuses in, a, mm -hmm. in an investment banking environment and we've got to take note of that yeah um, because they're they're looking at some of the senior leaders and saying, I think you've sacrificed way too much, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's important to me to have a meaningful career as part of a thriving life, but it's not all about my career. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is a mindset change and a behavior change that we all need to adopt. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a, there's a latent belief that, that addressing your mental health is, is going to set you back or is going to be a hurdle 
but it, it, it isn't. It's, the a, it's a performance enhancer. <laughs> exactly. The things that I did to take me from crisis to wellness, I do more of now and it underpins my capabilities, yeah. Yeah. my efficacy, you know, the, my ability to fulfill more roles and manage my time better. You know, we need to repackage this as CPD, not as, not as mental health. <laughs> Absolutely, 100%. And I think forward so, thinking Rob, organizations. We've taken you way off script here, oh. so we'll give it back to you. Yeah, yeah, I, I, but I, I love it. I love it. Um, so I want to achieve two more things in the 14 minutes we've got left. And that's to, to really understand a bit more about your book, Jen, and, and your work, Clark, and, and answer a few questions. So please, please do post your QA in the chat. Um, Clark, um, if, you, if you have a look at the one from Mona Lisa around, you know, about 75% of deaths by suicide are by men. Mm. And how do we encourage men to, um, in business, not only to be open, but to support cultures of openness? I'd like you to reflect on that one for a second. But Jen, connections are so important. Tell us about your book. Tell us about the the, the kind of the learns from that book. I know it's going to be a, a soundbite we need from it, but <laughs> what can we expect from reading your book and, and talk about the benefits of connection in the workplace? Yeah, so um, the book is about the the benefit of or the 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 need for social connection in the workplace, and in large part, um, the impact that technology has had on our ability to create and maintain uh, meaningful social connections, which was really fascinating um, because we didn't intend to write that book in the middle of a global pandemic when when you know everything the only thing that we had keeping us connected was our technology um so that is certainly reflected in the book but it really um talks about what are what are those true human skills that you know only humans could do and how we need to you know stop kind of trying to compete with our technology so technology has a role to play and that's great. How do we as humans celebrate what makes us human and use that technology to really enhance and augment us as humans in the workplace and how that leads to the creation of trusted teams and psychological safety and you know a trusted team we describe as a team that um, values individual well-being but also relationships and how do organizations and teams create that environment um, so that relationships and well-being are something that that is valued and we dive deep into the research um, in terms of what that looks like um, related to the the bottom line of the business so the metrics that organizations tend to care about but also make a case for new metrics that organizations should care about in terms of the human element and the human cost of of burnout and low morale and disengagement um, and all of the things that we don't want but seem to be way too prevalent in our workplaces today. Wow, sounds like a must read for everyone. So we'll be posting links on how to get hold Thank of it. You. Um, <laughs> Thanks they, for the promo on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's the plug. Yeah, um, copy, please, Joe. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> me too, me too, me too. I'll buy it. I'll buy it first and then send it to you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so th this, there's a bit of that. I mean, we, we hear a lot of talk around psychological safety, don't we? And, and Google have done their analysis of you know, Project Aristotle and, and psychological safety being the number one factor on effective teams, highly effective teams. And, and this is clearly so important, isn't it, that people can feel they can make mistakes they can speak up if if they're struggling with something or they're worried about something they um, their voice can be heard how important is that in in the context of what you've been talking about jen i i mean i think it's the 
I think it's the underpinning of everything, right? <laughs> I, I don't, I think if you, um, you know, if, so number, number one, I would say, you know, a lot of people in a lot of organizations are talking about psychological safety. Um, I think we, we need to do a better job of actually understanding what that is and what that looks like um, and, and how it comes to life in the workplace. And um, one of the things that we talk about in the book related to psychological safety is the importance of allowing emotions in the workplace. And so for so long, we have, you know, kind of been taught or told that the, you know, check your emotions at the door. Um, but what we argue in the book is that, um, you know, in particular as a leader, but just as a colleague or a good friend, you know, allowing emotions of all kinds, including negative emotions into the workplace as a leader, that's invaluable data, right? To, to know what, you know, what, creates negative triggers somebody or creates negative emotions allows you to really know what matters to that person mm -hmm. and it helps you to understand how you can support that person um, and it helps you to create this psychologically safe environment and so bringing allowing people to bring those emotions into the workplace and to to say hey you know what I, i'm actually having a pretty crappy day I think I should probably not join all these meetings because I'm not going to show up at my best or, <laughs> you know, take a mental health day or, you know, but to your point, also allowing, creating a space where you allow for failure. And we talk about that a lot, but we don't actually handle it well when it happens <laughs> um, because human beings in general don't handle failure well. And, and, and I always ask like, who, like, what's the definition of failure, right? Like we all make mistakes, but what, what actually constitutes a real failure? Like, did someone die? No. Okay. Then it's probably not a failure, <laughs> you know? And so, you know, are we allowed to make mistakes? Look, we make mistakes every, I make hundreds of mistakes probably every single day, if not more. Um, ask my husband, he'll tell you all about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think the, the the part about psychological safety, I think it's critical, but to me, psychological safety means allowing people to show up as, you know, in their full humanity. Like, let's just be humans. Like, let, let us be humans in the workplace and accept that people are going to have bad days, accept that people are going to do stupid things and say stupid things and make mistakes because that's part of the human experience. Um, and stop holding ourselves to this standard of having to be perfect all the time because it's it's a myth right like it just doesn't it doesn't exist and the more we strive for it the worse the worse it becomes and it becomes an addiction right i mean i was there that's the that's the reason for my burnout was striving for this you know vision of perfection that i could never meet um and and and, and it's just toxic and so to me that's you know that's kind of my own personal definition of psychological safety and i think it it starts there right if you don't have that um there's not a lot of progress you can make on your team and your organizations yeah. when it comes to these things 100 um never let perfectionism stand in the way of progress is something <laughs> i like to say um and and interestingly i've just changed the tagline of form score to be more human full stop because that's what we're trying to create we're trying to create more human workplaces individuals and, and everything else so so clark um just keen to pick up on that 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 man uh, that male point mm. you know we know that us us gentlemen um struggle to sometimes to be open about uh, uh, our struggles. What, what's your view there? How can we create more open cultures from a male perspective? And then I'm keen to hear a bit more about your, your initiatives at the moment. 
Uh, it's, it's a brilliant question. And again, it, it's, you know, we're looking for the single strand answer and it's not a single strand answer because we're, we're collating all men under under one banner. Um, leading leading um, taker of life, suicide in the 15 to 29 demographic globally, but that demographic in the UK is 39 to 55. So we're talking about different generations of people who are responding and being affected in different ways. Now, uh, our work and, uh, and what we found, the four you know, predominant themes and tenets that, that underpin people not addressing or acknowledging or accessing services is visibility of the services. They either don't know they're there, or if they do know they're there, they don't know what they constitute or how to access them. The confidentiality about those services is the second aspect. Who's gonna find out what I say? Third aspect is peer perception. So what do my colleagues think about when they see me accessing these services? And the fourth and final one, and the biggest one is the employability. And all of these are things that affect uh, a man's identity, especially if he holds that archaic identity of hunter, gatherer, father, provider, disciplinarian, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. To address this, we need to encourage men to understand their identity and their values and what their meaning is in life. And, you know, it goes to, to what Jen was talking about. What are you striving for? Uh, if your definition of success is, is, um, is constructed around other people's perceptions, you will perpetually fail. You will never meet everyone else's perception. You will always find failure somewhere. If you are striving for an emotion, if you're striving for happiness, you will perpetually fail. Happiness is an emotion. It is transient. It comes, and when it comes, experience it. But it will also depart because there are other valid emotions that we have to fill in our lives. So having this emotional literacy, having an understanding of our core values and setting our own parameters on what determines success and failure in a day that allows a person to come home, look in the mirror and be contented. Not contented in that settling for how it's commonly perceived nowadays, but feeling contentment that I set my targets today, I applied everything that I've got for them and I have been of value to what I hold valuable. That's how we change it. But that's a, a grand scheme thing within the workplace. And this leads to, to Nicola's point about, you know, older attitudes at the top of, of an organization. You need to speak their language. So there are two things that I think that speak an older generation's language. First of all, when it comes to, to men, you don't have to be like me. You don't have to tell everybody your business, but it is imperative when you're going through something that you tell someone and the right someone. So it's understanding that this doesn't have to be a global affair. Yeah, it's bring your whole self to work, but your business can still be your business. Just make sure it's being dealt with by the right qualified person at the right time. Secondly, uh, when it comes to an organization, don't talk to them about the, the ethical and moral implications. Talk to them about compliance. In the UK, Health and Safety at Work Act, personal injury is any disease or any impairment of a person's physical or mental being. 
It's been in law since 1974. So everything that we do with regard to health and safety, information, instruction, uh, training and supervision, a risk assessment, a strategy and policy revised on a timely basis, that applies to mental health too. It's just that no one does it. On a global scale, ISO 45003, um, the new international standard for basic psychological provision in the workplace, tell them to be honest and fill the mental health audit according to ISL 45003 and see what they need to do as an organization in order to be compliant with the basic provision that's expected from here to Bangladesh yeah. to, to Botswana. Yeah. You know what? Um, if I were going to write a book, I would take this this conversation. I'd write out of the themes, and then I'd write some more words below those headers because it's just amazing what you two are both talking about. Uh, I'd like to share a secret with you as well. This has my, been my favourite ever panel discussion that I've moderated. I'm just telling you that quietly and, and to LinkedIn at large. <laughs> Does that mean um, do we win? Yes, you, we win. Yeah, you are, <laughs> success. You, collecti collecti collectively, we're the, we're the winners. We've achieved success. Hey, hey, Clark, I don't know if you can see my little, uh, I call it a soccer ball. I know you call it a football up there on my on my shelf, but I do have a history of being a, a, a football player. So we'll have to connect on that. Definitely. Played at, yeah. I played at University of Miami. So. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> well, actually, what we're working on is um, elite athlete player welfare support mechanisms we're looking at soccer over here first but uh, looking to go into education establishments especially across the pond so yeah let's let's connect, let's connect. <laughs> amazing more reasons amazing so look um 30 seconds each what is your one hope for the future where workplace well-being is concerned um jen start with you please my one hope for the future <laughs> that that it becomes so inherent and part of workplace culture and just part of the way that we work that, you know, I probably shouldn't say this out loud, but that you won't need somebody like me in, in the role. <laughs> um, but it's just, it's who we are and how we do work and the way we treat one another. 100%. Yeah, let's do ourselves out of jobs. I hear you on that. Clark, what is your one hope? You know, my, my hope is actually a certainty. Um, I know that the next generation, my eldest daughter, 22, her and younger, that they get this. They will be the decision makers at some point. So my hope isn't about that future workplace. It's about this interim period of some 15, 20 years. You know, can we do everything that we possibly can to save lives in that time? Yeah. Mm. So, well, we're doing it. Um, listen, thank you both, uh, my friends, for spending an hour with me um, uh, talking uh, about all of this really important stuff. Thank you to all of the role models that are tuning in and those that aren't for everything you do in smashing the stigma and creating mentally healthy workplaces and societies. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. God bless everyone.